Shine. Shine is our girls' camp that we do every year around this time. I want to introduce you to our, our campers this year as they're going to spend uh, till Thursday, so almost a full week, just learning about their role in the church and, and what they can do. You know, we often talk about what the women can't do, and uh, we want to focus and emphasize on what they can do. I want to introduce to you, first of all, the Shine Committee. These ladies work really hard, uh, along with other volunteers, to put this all together. They are Letha Bailey, Becky Connell, Terry Nolan, Joyce Sledge, Jean Smith, Debbie McCoy, and Stacy Wilhelm. So those are our Shine Committee members who, along with volunteers, do a great job in getting this all organized and put together. I also want to introduce to you our counselors. I ask them to stand. Briarston Ashford, Caroline Burnham, Vina Gilbert, and Madeline Harper. They are counseling this week. And so our campers are Alyssa Argijo, who is from Oldham Lane. Alyssa, if y'all would, just stand up briefly. Kaylin Clinton, who's from Oldham Lane. Hannah Connell, from Oldham Lane. Molly Davis, from Oldham Lane. Natalie Day, from Oldham Lane. Paige Harper, from Oldham Lane. Joanna Huff, from Little Rock, Arkansas. Lydia Longley, from Oldham Lane. Fiona McBrock from Oldham Lane, Zoe McCurley from here, Kaylee Miller from Oldham Lane, Audrey Shalock from San Antonio, Shay Talley from Oldham Lane, Michaela Tapia from Highway 36, Rachel Tebow from Oldham Lane, Taya Wallace from Oldham Lane, and Ella Wilhelm from Oldham Lane. If you would be praying this week for this camp and for these girls, and I know they're excited about the week, and just pray that everything goes smoothly and that they learn a lot. We're so grateful for their commitment to be here this week and for all those who are helping with the camp. You know, tonight we have the blessing of having Wayne Roberts kick things off for us with a lesson called Gals from Galilee, and Wayne is a good friend of mine. His uh, wife, Tammy, has been with us now for the last couple of years, uh, kind of um, our main speaker for Shine. Wayne helps us out with preacher training camp as well and does a great job with that. He is a true man of the word and someone who has a very unique and, and wonderful way of presenting God's word. And so we asked him to come and to kick it off tonight. He is, he is working uh, with the Southwest congregation in Oklahoma City, but took time out of his busy schedule to be with you all Wednesday night, from what I understand. He accused me of going on vacation, so I'd missed that. And uh, I didn't deny that, but anyway, he, he came back with us to be with us tonight to kick off Shine. Thanks, Wayne, for being here. stand on this side because Wednesday night I stood on this side and everybody felt I was picking on them so it's your turn over here. I'm sorry I couldn't have been with you this morning because I understand that if you speak three times in a row you're added to the staff so I missed it by that much. It was good to be here last Wednesday night but it put a great deal of pressure on me because I thought well you know, when you come in and just speak once, you leave, and if they liked you, they love you. If they hated you, it doesn't matter. You're going home. But I thought, boy, if they like me, then I'm going to come back tonight, and they're going to expect me to have two good sermons, okay? And if they hated me, somebody's going, oh, no, he's back. Where's Chris? I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, finally, uh, I, do, I need to say, you know, James McCoy took his life into his own hands tonight. He did what I wouldn't do. 
I remember one particular evening, I saw him over there helping them as they were rolling the gospel chariot. I picked a young man during our vacation Bible school pre-session to come up and lead a song. And I always would take their hands and I would move it like they were leading a song. Now, what I didn't know is, later his mother shared, that he was an extreme introvert, that he never did anything outward like that. He never came up. And so it was a huge step for him. Well, as I took his hands, they became like doll's arms. And when I swung them like this, his right hand slung over and knocked him right in the nose and bloodied it. So you might want to slow that gospel chariot up just a little bit. Uh, I'm going to go ahead with the lesson that I have prepared, but that green top hat wearing slug stole some of my material tonight, talking about Lydia and Dorcas. So if you all of a sudden go, have I heard this before? You can move right from the lamb up to the giraffe class if you would like. So in 1943, a very famous painter by the name of Norman Rockwell painted a picture that became the cover of one of the issues of the Saturday Evening Post. It was of a woman, broad in the shoulders, somewhat manly in her arms, thick in the middle, which Rockwell later would apologize for, and she was posed um, holding this pneumatic riveting gun. She had dark, thick, red, curly hair. She was dressed in blue coveralls. She had on red socks and penny loafers. And she had poised, about ready to take its first bite, what looks to me exactly like a ham and cheese sandwich. Later, someone would call her Rosie the Riveter. She was not a real person, though a real person modeled for the particular painting, but she came to represent the more than 3 million women who entered the workplace during World War II in the absence of men who had gone to war. Not only those uh, 3 million, but some 16 million other women who either had been out of work because of the Depression or had taken some more menial, quote-unquote, clerical positions. Now they all stepped up in great force, almost 20 million, into the workplace as they found their place constructing airplanes and weaponry, and they were fundamental, no one argues, they were fundamental in America winning that particular conflict. Well... The war ends, men come back, they return to their jobs, there is not the same need for munitions that there once was, and those women humbly went back to their homes. Some of them took lesser paying jobs and went into clerical positions, and in the mind of some historians, they were forgotten for the contribution that they made. In fact, there are some in our generation who have adopted Rosie the Riveter as the great icon of feminism. Well, you know, she really wasn't an idealistic revolutionary. That was never her intent. She was to be a rallying cry, but for those kinds of women who were great uh, patriots, who cared about their country, and they cared about their families, and they put their head down, and they went to work, whatever was necessary. They were honest women. They were real women. 
they were the kind of women that really do make a great impact on history as um, we see not only in them but in women like them. You know, when we look at Scripture, it is full of women who, well, they just had an incredible impact on the Bible story. They are at the center of some of the most powerful and some of the most uh, emotional stories in all of Scripture. And whereas some would think that women have fallen out of favor with God, let me just tell you right now, on the onset, that God has placed women in a very prominent position in his word and in his work. And we cannot and should never think that they take anything but a great role in God's working. We'll talk a little bit more about in our generation in just a bit, but I just want to kind of take a very quick survey of some of these women who showed great courage, great humility, great generosity, great compassion. And as I said, they affected not only the world in which they lived in, but the world in which we live in as well. I mean, the pages or the ink on the pages of Scripture are barely dry when we're introduced to Eve, one who was created out of the side of man to be his companion, to be his helpmeet, to be his partner, to complete him, God said. And even though Eve often wears around her neck that signage that said, I was the first to sin in the new world, let me just tell you, God also, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, looked at her, and within the condemnation that he made, he made a promise not only to her, but to every generation that would follow, and that is that there was one that was coming, which he called her seed, an interesting expression, because typically we think about the seed of man. But here it was the seed of woman that would come and ultimately drive a decisive death blow to the evil one, the devil. Eve plays an important part in that story. We aren't but a few chapters away, and we're introduced to a woman by the name of Sarah. Sarah, too, kind of gets one of those bad raps, and maybe to some degree rightly so, as she laughed at the idea that in her old age that she would give birth to a son. And maybe along with her husband Abraham, they conceived a plan to help God out when he couldn't do it in the time that they thought was fitting. But God chose, through Sarah, to bring a son of promise into the world that would be of the that would ultimately be whose descendant would be Jesus Christ. A promised son as part of God's important plan. I mean, we go through, I just kind of made a quick list here, and we don't have time to look at all of them, but I think of one by the name of Hannah, a prayerful woman who felt that she could only contribute if she had a son, and she prayed diligently for that son with the promise of dedicating that son to the Lord. And when God answered her prayer, she did that very same thing. We have the woman Deborah. We don't have time to talk about Deborah's story, but she is one of the judges over Israel. She is a judge. She is a counselor. She is a warrior. She by no means is some kind of a soft-spoken, timid, insignificant part of God's way of dealing with his people. I think of a woman by the name of Esther, Queen Esther, She's one who was an Israelite, and she found out through a relative, through a cousin of hers, 
that there was a plot by one who was in the king's very own household, who was part of his administration, who were plotting to kill the Jews. And when it was brought to Esther's attention, she was instructed, you need to go and tell the king. She makes the case. She just don't go in, barging into the king's uh, chambers. You don't just go in, even though I'm the queen, and start pointing your finger of accusation around. And her cousin Mordecai said, who knows what God has in, plan, in store? If you don't do it, he most certainly will fulfill his plan with another. But it may very well be that you have come to this place, to this power, to this position as part of God's plan. And that's, in fact, what she did. She built great courage as she approached her husband, the king, and told of the plot and then revealed who, in fact, was behind that plot risking her very own life for the sake of the people. I think of Ruth and Naomi. There are not two more beautiful pictures of the kind of relationship between a family, the commitment to one another, whereas one is older and one is younger and they both have such great admiration for the other and they sacrifice for one another and they uh, present that beautiful picture of what a relationship between people should be. But, you know, it's not just in the Old Testament. The New Testament perhaps even surpasses the Old Testament with all of those individuals. Of course, there is the young woman by the name of Mary, a woman who is betrothed. She is engaged, and God appears to her and tells her that the center of the ages... The culmination of that promise that was made all the way back to Eve would be fulfilled through her body. That she would deliver a son and he would be the great deliverer. She is a woman of great compassion. We find her as one who treasures these things as any mother would. But how much more special knowing that you would be mother to the very son of God. When Jesus is very young, he is presented, as was the custom, at the temple. We find a woman there by the name of Anna. She's 84 years old, Scripture tells us. She is a widow woman. It says that she was married for seven years. We don't know how young she was when she was married, but it said that she was married for seven years, and then she was widowed, never to marry again, and that she never left the temple that she served day and night, and that she did so with great prayer and great fasting. I mean, what a picture of humility. One who takes the role of a servant, one that is there to see the infant child that would become the Christ, but one who served before that, and as far as we know, continued to serve in that capacity in her death. There are some other uh, individual ladies that serve. We have those that were mentioned in the kind of the Bible drill period of time. A woman by the name of Lydia who was a great religious leader in a community that lacked enough men to even have a synagogue. It would seem as if not only was she a great spiritual giant, but that she was a woman of some commerce, that she was providing not only for herself and for her family, but perhaps other women, that she had a group of these women that she provided for, and yet they would come together for a time of prayer by the river. One named 
Dorcas or Tabitha, a woman who we find out when we come on into the story of Tabitha that she has died. And there is great weeping and great lamenting over this powerful woman of God. And they begin with her body still there to show the tunics and the fabrics and the uh, clothing that she has made for people. And all the work that she had done, we don't know for how many years, but it seems as if that her working was powerful enough that those in her community felt an enormous void. Perhaps it was a, vo so a void that so much God used the person of Dorcas to resurrect her from the dead and bring her back to those people that loved her so much. I mean, what a beautiful picture of one who was a compassionate servant. I think of Mary and Martha again. Some uh, so often the historic, uh, the historians or those that give a casual look over Scripture will say, "Oh, Martha, Martha." But you know, Martha was a great servant. She served and she served. Her understanding was that that was the way that she would revere. Her sister Mary gets a little more credit. She was emotional. We see her being one that came and put a very costly ointment on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her very hair. But as sisters, they are a beautiful picture. These were personal friends of Jesus. He frequented, if not stayed regularly, with them and their brother Lazarus whenever he was in the southern region of, uh, of Judea where he would minister or when he was there to minister. There's some others. Yodi and Syntyche, I always think about them in Philippians chapter 4. Yodi and Syntyche are doing some great things for the kingdom, but they're at odds with one another. And Paul asks the church in Philippi to help him. I always wondered what it was like to be Yodi and Syntyche. I mean, after Philippians was written, whenever they had a Bible study at their church, and they studied the book of Philippians, they got to chapter 4 and went, I know, we got it fixed. Why are we going over this? over and over, but more so than the conflict before between Yodi and Syntyche, it is important to notice how Paul describes them. He calls them fellow workers. That's not derogatory, folks, when he calls them fellow workers. He meant they are partners in the work that I'm doing as an evangelist. He even goes on to say that they struggle for the sake of the kingdom. And we could spend the entire week I could bore the shine girls to death with all the lessons of powerful and inspirational women in Scripture. But I wanted to focus on a group of women that were fundamental and instrumental in Jesus' ministry. I call them the gals from Galilee with uh, no malice intended. In Luke chapter 8, this is how the doctor describes them. And it came about, this is verse 1 of Luke 8. It came about soon afterwards that he, that's Jesus, began going about from city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve, that's the apostles, were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, 
and Susanna and many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. We don't have much written either in scripture or in history about these ladies. Mary Magdalene is probably the one that we're the most familiar with. We find her instrumental in the stories that are told about Jesus' ministry and about Jesus' death and the body being prepared and about a resurrection as she was the first one to appear at the tomb. The others, I'll be honest, become a bit convoluted because we got a Mary this and a Mary that and a Mary that's also a friend of a Mary. It gets a little confusing, but here's what we do know about them. First of all, we know that Mary Magdalene was released, the scripture tells us, from seven demons. Now, we don't know about what Mary's life was before that, but we do know what it was like in the first century with some who was possessed by a demon. Do not confuse this demonic possession of the first century with just the inability to explain some sickness or malady. It is very clear that Jesus identified that there were those who were possessed by a demon and that those that were sick of something. But those who were demon-possessed, we have the fact that some of them were out of control in their bodies and they would throw themselves into the fire. We found one who was naked living amongst the tombs in the very region in which Mary was from, the region of Magdala on that kind of northeastern or northwestern shore of Galilee. He was one that had been tried to subdue, be subdued on a number of occasions. We find those that would be thrown to the ground and that they would thrash and some who would cut themselves. One can only imagine what Mary's life must have been like possessed by those very seven demons. It would have been a miserable life. It would have been, no pun intended, a tormented life. The other women, it simply seems to indicate that they had some sort of sickness. We don't know if it's a sickness that they had had from birth that Jesus healed them, something that had come upon them, something that affected their eyesight, something that affected their walking, something that affected some other aspect. But it says that they were healed and Mary was rescued. And that's about all we know except what Luke tells us about how they fit into Jesus' ministry. These were women... The text says that out of their very own means, they supported Jesus in the, and the disciples in the work that they were doing. Now, I have seen some commentators that said these must have been single women of some wealth. For how else would a woman be able to get away from her husband or children, her responsibility uh, with, her chi- with her family and in her home? So maybe the single makes sense, but did you know that there is nothing that indicates that any of them had any wealth? Some would say, well, perhaps Mary Magdalene had been one who had had a great wealth that had been in, she had been inherited to. We don't have that. It's very possible that these very women were giving up every single thing they had, whatever it was, to help be supportive of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the history books or some of the traditions about Mary Magdalene, they paint a pretty uh, vivid picture of her being a woman of immorality. Let me just tell you right now, there is absolutely nothing 
in scripture or in history that is verifiable that would indicate that Mary had any of those tendencies or any of those practices. She was, upon her release from the demons, she was a wonderful woman who followed after Jesus and from her own, the text says, ministered. Hard for us to think because we use that term in a variety of ways, but the word that is used of them is that they ministered. They were some of the first ministers of Jesus that there were. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not permitting something that God says not to do, but what I'm saying is what God has people doing, we need to let people do, and that's what they did is they ministered. But they're not only there at the beginning. You know, sometimes at the beginning of an adventure, everybody's in. This is going to be exciting. Jesus is going to rescue us. He's going to set up a kingdom, at least they believe. He's going to do everything, and it's going to be wonderful. It's easy to kind of get in on that. But as the ministry goes on, it becomes clear that this isn't exactly what it's going to be. And ultimately, Jesus reveals to his disciples, which would have included these women, that he is going to have to die for the sake of mankind. And you know what? When multitudes of people followed, these ladies followed. When multitude of people left, these women continued to follow. And they followed to the very cross of Jesus Christ. Mark describes some women who were, it says, afar off. If you combine the gospel accounts, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make reference to these women as one group or the other, it says initially they were at, it seems as if they were at the cross. Not just in the scene, but they were present at the very foot alongside of the Apostle John and Jesus' mother Mary. They were right there. No doubt as the onlookers and those who came by to spit and to humiliate and to strike Jesus came up upon them, that they were pushed further and further back. Eventually it says that they are afar off, but that is not the kind of people that they are. They just can't get any closer. And when Jesus' body is finally left lifeless, his spirit having ascended into heaven, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea requests the body, but do you know who's with Joseph? These women. It says they have come with spices, they have come with salves, they have come with wraps, as would have been the custom of the Jews, not like the Egyptians who seek to mummify, but they would put on all of these ointments and all of these creams and these and these herbs partially to when the body starts to decompose for it not to smell and to keep the wild animals away. But as Jesus himself speaking of Mary, the sister of Martha, he said, they are revering me. They are taking many of which were costly herbs and costly spices, and they are spending them on Jesus even when he is not present in spirit and only in body, they are tending to him. They are there at the cross. They are there at the burial. The text tells us that as the day of Passover came, the day of Sabbath, that they stepped away from those duties as was their custom. That's a religious practice. And then on the first day of the week, they came to complete or to finish the work. 
There's a discussion about the fact that there's a giant stone and it's over the tomb and it's got to be moved and how will this happen? And then all of a sudden they get there and the scene is not what they expected. Because first of all, the stone has been hurled away, the text says. And they look into the tomb and they see that the body is missing. It's a beautiful picture of compassion as they are concerned. Mary Magdalene herself is concerned about what has happened to the body. It has not yet uh, gelled in her mind that this is the resurrection that Jesus promised. She goes and she races off to tell the disciples about what's happened. You ever realize this? She preaches the very first gospel sermon in all the New Testament. She talks about a resurrected Jesus. And when she tells them, they come racing, and they race in, those men, you know, impulsive men, we're going to go in and fix something. They go racing in there, and Mary is there overtaken by compassion for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't appear first to those who ran into the tomb. He doesn't appear first to those who have locked themselves up out of fear. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And at first she does not recognize him. Perhaps it is the mist of the morning. Perhaps it is that she is overtaken with grief. Perhaps it is that her brain simply isn't going to register the thing that she has seen, a resurrected Jesus. And he speaks to her. And she says, I'm just looking for the body of my Lord. She's supposing him the gardener that he might know the disposition of Jesus' remains. She says, could you just tell me? Just tell me where the body is. I I don't mean to be any more hassle. I don't want to be an inconvenience. I'll go and take care of it. And Jesus speaks again to her, and she realizes who it is. Rabboni, she responds. The teaching one. She knows it is Jesus. I want you to imagine these women working together in the ministry of Jesus. I said that they were women of great courage, much, much like uh, their sister of old, Esther. These were women who walked in a circle of men completely appropriately, but certainly a group of men that were constantly in the sight of the Pharisees. I mean, you know, it's been said about men that, you know, uh, bravery means an absence of brains. That's why some of us guys are the bravest guys you've ever met. But women are a lot smarter than that. And you know what? They knew exactly the threat of hanging out with Jesus, and they were there. When Jesus is arrested, there are some disciples that flee. There are some disciples that deny. There are disciples that lock the door. And where do we find? We find Mary and those other women at the foot of the cross being amongst those who request the body of the one who has been executed. And even after it seems as if hope is lost because Jesus is dead, they haven't given up on following Jesus. They're there ministering to him and serving him. Scripture goes cold on the story of Mary of Magdala and those other women. There are a few historic traditions but we know very little. Let me correct that. What we know about them speaks enormously. They were women of, cur- of courage. 
They were women of great humility who saw their role of service as being something glorious. They were generous, taking from their own pockets without reservation, unselfishly giving to support the work. And as one would expect, in the compassion that it seems as if only women can have, they are the most compassionate of all of the scriptures. We look through the Bible, we find queens, we find judges, we find the rich, we find the poor, we find women of some acclaim and some that barely get a mention in scripture. But we continue to see this theme that God used these women mightily in his ministry. Part of God's plan to bring Jesus into the world and what he ultimately did when he was on this earth all had that part. I don't want to let the men off the hook. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes it very clear that everyone has a value, that everyone is important, that everyone is someone that God needs, that we are independently valuable and yet so interdependent upon one another. But that one another and that independently valuable and that interdependent on one another is not just for men. It's for women as well. A moment of commentary, an invitation, and we'll be done for those of you who are watching the clock. Our world today is trying to, quote-unquote, expand the role of women in the church. It is my observation that what they're actually doing is squelching the role of women in the church. What they would like to do is to make them the men of the church. In fact, it is surprising to me that some have tried to paint the idea that we would really allow women to fulfill their ministry role if they could pass out the communion trays. God's got something so much more than that. It's interesting that there are men who advocate an expanded role of women to do the very thing that most, women, most men don't want to do. To lead. To serve. To be compassionate. To be generous. And they go, I got an idea. We should expand the role of women. Because if they'll do it, guess what? We're off the hook. God has a role for everyone. He has a specific role for men that is essential to him accomplishing his purpose in our generation. And he has an equally valuable role for women in that work as well. And anybody who tells you different isn't paying attention to God's very own word. Women are people of great courage. They are women of great generosity. Great humility. That power under control. And they are the most compassionate of all. Let us not try to put them into a bottle that they were never intended to live in. In other words, ladies, it is your time. God, perhaps, has brought you to this very moment, as Mordecai said, for such a time as this. It is time for you to shine, to be all that God has called you to be. But that invitation is for all of us, men and women, young and old, that God is calling us to something great. He is calling us to be people of courage, people of humility and service, people of generosity, 
and most certainly people of compassion. It is the example that he has given us. It is the call that he makes, and it's an invitation for you to take your place in the service of Jesus as that beautiful example that we have of those gals from from Galilee. Tonight, there are God's continual invitations for you to take your place in his service. First of all, becoming a child of his, being added by his power to his church upon your obedience. Immersion in water for the remission of sins is not of you. A realization of your past sins and repentance of that and decision that the power is in Jesus Christ to rescue you and to turn your life over and then in the water of baptism to access the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe it is a call to you who have once become a child of his but fell out of duty, fell out of service and is no longer what God called you to be and it is a call for you not to be rebaptized but for a call for you to be repentant to be recommitted. Maybe it is that simply along the way you thought, you know what, I'm just not man enough to do this job. Well, then be woman enough to do this job and step step back into the service that God has called us to. It is by more than custom that we offer an invitation at the conclusion of most of our services. It is because it is a reminder that God's invitation is always open, but it's a great opportunity for you to make some individual and personal commitments. And if a public response would be a service to you that we might pray with you, study with you, comfort you in some way, or perhaps it is you're ready to become a child of God, we're going to afford you that opportunity now. Let's stand and encourage one another as we stand together and sing.